You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the website. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. Listeners, Dan and I are actually coming to you from a different location in the U.S. today. We had the good fortune of both being able to go back home to New Hampshire on the East Coast for a couple of weeks ahead of PAX West, which I've mentioned before on the podcast we will be presenting at over Labor Day weekend and giving a couple of panels. And the timing just worked out where we were both actually independently thinking of visiting our families who live here. Uh, if listeners don't know or forgot, we, we went to high school together in the area. That's how we met. And so we've, we've already had occasion to do such uh, very serious and rigorously academic things as watch the end of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Stardust Crusaders together last night. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what today's episode is about, folks. I'm going to take it from here, everybody. <laughs> Hijacking the podcast. With a terrible fate. All JoJo, all the time. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, it's it's a bad joke to make on a week when we're talking about a JRPG because <laughs> too much of JRPGs are JoJo all the time. <laughs> How is it returning to your families, returning to your hometowns? Have you? I assume you haven't been there in a while, especially because of the pandemic, right? Especially because of the pandemic. I think it's been about a year or even a year and a half for yeah. both of us. Uh, and I, I don't want to speak for Dan, but we've, we've both been bouncing around to different places fairly far from home uh, since we left and graduated college. So for me, it, it always feels like coming home in some regard or another, and it's great to catch up with my parents. One of the great upgrades they made in the last couple of years was adding a hot tub uh, oh in the backyard. So <laughs> that's, that's always something to look forward to, and I won't lie. It's something that I envision many times when I'm not here and, and could use a bit of a rest. Yeah, it's it's nice to be back. I think um, it had been far too long for me seeing my family. So uh, it was just nice to come home and kind of um, drive on all the familiar roads and know where I'm going and see the changes. So it's been it's been pleasant and I'm glad to be here for a little while. Did you have this experience as well that everything kind of looks smaller than you remembered? I, Aaron, did I not literally yes. say that to you last night? <laughs> yes, I well, you did. especially you did. because uh, Texas, all of the highways, it's like you know these six lane super highways, and then coming mm. to New Hampshire, it's just two two lanes, <laughs> driving down and seeing everything much smaller. Yeah, I always love that. Stefan, in the in the U.S., there's this joke that everything is bigger in Texas. So I think Dan has that uh, mental distortion even more than I do now. <laughs> well, dear listeners, as you know, at With a Terrible Fate, we strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. And that is why this show is free and independent. You won't encounter any advertisements. You won't hit a paywall. And instead, we rely entirely on your support. So if you wish to contribute, then please go to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. This time, we're going to actually flip the script a little bit, quite literally so, uh, because we, we've got a bigger spoiler block coming up in the latter half of the show. We're going to warn you in time. But first up, we're going to do our side quests this time around. And uh, Aaron, you've brought something nice that we can start the show off with. 
Yeah, I wanted to start with a reflection that comes directly out of my trip back to New Hampshire, actually. So I decided to brave flying on a plane, which felt, I, I guess you could say, as safe as it could, uh, given all of the COVID precautions and everything that the airline was taking. But something interesting to me happened. Uh, I, Before the pandemic happened, I flew on planes fairly frequently, and I typically bring my switch because... Let's be honest, that's one of its main best use cases is being able to easily be pulled out during travel. Um, and I had this feeling that I don't usually get, which is just a sense of discomfort about people whom I hadn't invited to watch my gaming being right next to me and able to watch it. And the person next to me on the plane, you know, she was a very nice, polite, mild-mannered woman who, who minded her own business. So it, it wasn't as if anyone was gawking, but it got me thinking about, especially as I've gotten older as a gamer, just how kind of unexpectedly intimate the experience of inviting someone to watch you game is. Not gaming with someone necessarily, but just having them looking on as as you're making these decisions and guiding these games forward. And so I wanted to just use it as an opportunity to kick off discussion if you guys have ever felt that way of having uninvited onlookers in your gaming sessions and when that's come up and how it's made you feel. Yeah, I think I, I remember one time when I was I was on a train and I was... I think I was playing Danganronpa, like the, the <laughs> visual novel, the, the second part. Oh, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's just yeah. such a perfect thing, like to play a visual novel while traveling. And I do remember <laughs> there was like this, uh, there was a lady behind me and like an older lady. And I was I was playing and there's this, there's this scene, uh, a total fan service where one of the characters is like, you know, she's like a, you could say like a sexy, clumsy nurse, and she like falls on the floor and with she carries a bottle of champagne or something or water, and it like sprinkles all over her, and she's like, ah, you know, <laughs> like that, it's, it's Danganronpa, you know, it's a Japanese visual novel, and I was in that scene that was while I had forgotten everything around me beforehand, I, I looked around and I saw like that lady <laughs> in horror behind me. <laughs> Man, that was really, that was a moment of like almost, I would say, almost game shame where I felt like um, for a second I had this disconnect where I thought like, oh, I'm over 30 and, you know, <laughs> other people are sitting here like reading a book or reading the newspaper and I'm sitting here and that lady probably thinks like, wow, what's wrong with that dude? I've I I've definitely had situations where um, I've been playing something and I've felt weirdly self conscious about it um, on a on a flight or something. It's funny though I can't I can't think of a particular game example, but I remember on one flight um, this was years ago. I I get this with anime all the time where mm. I'm watching a particular anime and then I I don't think about what I'm watching until I'm around other people. And so I was watching, there's a, a really funny anime called Nichijo, um, My Everyday Life. And it's it's a story about three middle school girls, but it's so dry and hilarious. But I realized that they're not hearing the comedy. So it just looks like I'm watching a show about three middle school girls. <laughs> and I did think like, oh, maybe I should, oh no. maybe I should put on Attack on Titan or something. At least that's... <laughs> <laughs> More socially acceptable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh... People, I, I hope this isn't the first episode people are tuning into because between your examples and the JRPG I'm talking about, they'd be like, wow, what a bunch of fucking weebs here. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also... But I think that's... 
Uh, not to interrupt you, Stefan, but I, I, I think that's just so interesting. I, I do think a, a big part of it is, um, what would you call it? Like a barrier to accessibility or something, or just unfamiliar tropes for people? Because you're right, there, there's in many games that one would play, if someone is just looking on and has no context, it's it's so foreign relative to a movie you might see someone watching or a book you'd see someone reading. It just uh, maybe part of it is you just feel as if it warrants so much more explanation before they can even understand what you're doing. Yeah, it also I think depends on the cultural context because as far as i'm aware and i mean dan you can speak to this much more than i can but it appears to me that in japan it is for example much more common that people would play a video game on the train play a handheld or something whereas in germany it's pretty rare like people sit on the bus and play candy crush on their phones yes but if you pop out a switch then you will get some looks yeah i think i've never felt more comfortable playing something on my 3ds i have a very vivid memory of playing um shovel night on the train when I was living in Tokyo. And that was like, I was one of, you know, uh, two, three dozen people with a DS or something out. So it, I, it is just, I don't know, maybe like you were saying, Aaron, that it's still, uh, it's still seen as kind of, I don't know, like a childish thing, especially when you see something like Duncan Rampa. <laughs> <laughs> when that's when that's coming up, it just kind of gives you pause for. I wonder what is this person doing. It's funny though because you'd, you'd you think it would be. I mean, you'd think it wouldn't be that way, but I, I do feel that it is still sometimes. No, I think you're totally right. I th I think for me a big part of it is. Um, I wrote this thing years ago at this point about how there's a you know, a title that you can give someone of a gamer in a way where, you know, if, if someone is a person who reads books, you would never call them a reader because it's just more of the status quo that reading is something that a person does, whereas gaming still th seems more distinctive and like an unusual choice, right? I, I think that's part of it. Hopefully it will continue to change. But I do have to say, you know, insofar as we do still have that distinction, I'm already looking forward to the flight to PAX because Dan knows this from our experiences. It's it's like another world. It's the exact opposite experience because like every third person will be whipping out their Switch and playing something. And in that context, it is a fun kind of distinctive and distinguishing factor to see all of the fellow gamers and almost like a little in-group secret handshake or something, even though it shouldn't be that secret at this point in history. <laughs> it even reminds me, as you, while you brought up PAX, um, one of the most impactful experiences of having someone look over my shoulder while I was playing was actually at video game conferences, um, such as Gamescom, um, which is the one that I attended most frequently so, because there the situation was often me coming there as a journalist, and then you'd have like appointments with developers and the press agencies would be around and so on. Um, and you would play the video game while either a PR person or even someone from the development team is uh, standing or sitting right next to you. And that is always a very interesting experience. I feel like it, it can ruin things for me because there are <laughs> definitely people who just constantly interfere, who just constantly interfere with, like, they, they, they babble on about certain, like, random things that I don't <laughs> care about in that moment because I'm here to, you know, check out their game and write about it or talk about it on a show. And, and then they're just like, yeah, and this and this. 
Um, the worst thing is when they constantly give you instructions. So maybe for all of you out there who work at such conferences, you know, maybe as part, either as, you know, a person who hosts uh, such uh, such booths or works there, it's like, I, I appreciate it when people are like, when people guide me to the station, give me like a three to five sentence introduction of what I'm going to experience, and then you know, step aside, but stick around. So in case there's some problems, I can turn to you or I can ask, like, I can't proceed here or is there something wrong? Is there a bug? It happens frequently at such such uh, events, right? But don't interfere with my game. I don't want to feel like someone's constantly watching me while I play. I feel like I play is differently it, when someone constantly looks at the screen, you know? I think it, it's it's mm. uh, that that feeling of um, of backseat gaming, where yeah. we all grew up yeah. with friends who would say, no, you should do this, you should do this. And it's funny to think about the difference between, you know, when you're when you're cooperating with another person to try to beat something or when you're trying to get help from them. It's another thing entirely when you don't ask for it and it isn't warranted. <laughs> and yeah, I think that right. I, we've had those experiences at PAX too, where I think the people that we respect, people like Yacht Club, who, speaking of Shovel Knight, Yacht Club will just stand by you and watch as you play their new games. And then they say, well, what do you think? That's pretty much all that they do at the end of it. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I, I, it reminds me of, you know, a, like a film director. Um, they don't, can you imagine a film director coming into a theater and saying, hey, I made this. What do you guys think about it? It just seems so foreign. <laughs> <laughs> you're chatting during the film, you know, being like, ah, and, and here you're going to see, you're going to see this one. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> No, that, that's a great comparison. It's like if, if your first experience with a film were the director's commentary as yeah. opposed to just watching the film. <laughs> uh, okay, Dan, what have you brought? Well, just a little something. I um, So I've been uh, fairly busy this week, so I haven't really had any time for, for gaming or, or catching up on news. But when I came home, um, so my, my brother Matt and I are, are huge fans of the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, and he's become kind of a collector of it. Um, so I, I said when I went to uh, that um, Games Fest in Austin, I found a rare copy of something for him. And last night, we, uh, when I was in Tokyo, I bought a secondhand copy of the Japanese version of Ocarina of Time, and we had it in its box. And we there's this mystique around it because the the manual... In Japan, you were given, I think in, in America too, I'm not sure about Germany, but you were given stickers with the, um, the the notes for the ocarina and there would be blank spaces in the manual where you could put the songs so that you could remember them. And oh, that's so sweet. I, right, that's and awesome. I, yeah. I, I love this, this manual because it had, I think, up to the Song of Storms filled out which to me was this look into this Japanese kid's life playing this game. And we we had this sort of story about, oh, I wonder how far they got. And um, we couldn't play it because we didn't have a, a Japanese Nintendo 64, but my brother Matt found a way to kind of make it work. And so he popped it in and we, you know, we were hoping to see some kind of uh, um, save file and there really wasn't one. But uh, what we ended up really enjoying was we started a new game and I was reading the Japanese as it was, because we both know the the dialogue by heart at this point, and I was reading the Japanese, and it was so interesting to me to see how it was translated into English, and certain certain slang was being used, 
different honorific forms were being used by different characters. And we got into this game where we were saying, okay, that's how the Deku tree talks to Navi. How does Saria talk to Link? How does Mido talk to Link? And uh, speaking of Jojo, Mido talks to Link like Dio Brando does to every character in Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, this sort of that ha- makes sense. Yeah, this sort of <laughs> haughty, you know, I'm I'm better than you kind of language. And I was just thinking of that that Japanese kid who had this um who had this game and I was kind of wondering about how, you know, I I I I started thinking to myself how much of my own vocabulary was um was developed by reading video game dialogue. And then I thought how interesting is it that this kid would have read these different words and phrases and known immediately what kind of character you're talking to based on how they're speaking and learning these kinds of things. And kind of, it it made me think of a potential podcast that would be a lot of fun, which is the, the literacy of video games and how it, how they, they teach language. And, uh, it was just a really fun endeavor. So I'll keep you guys posted because we're about to see Ganondorf and I can't wait to see how he talks. Um, but it was just oh, a great, Omar. you know, couple of hours. Yeah. Lots of Omayas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably. <laughs> yep. And, uh, it was, uh, just a fun few hours with my brother kind of playing this old cartridge from, you know, 20 years ago. I noticed though that, for example, the, the, the word that we just used, Omaya, which is basically like a, almost like a, a derogatory way of saying like, Hey, you, right. You or like you over there, mm-hmm. you. And, uh, I noticed that in. Yakuza Like a Dragon, which I'm also playing with Japanese audio, but English subtitles because my Japanese is not that good yet that I would fully understand it otherwise. <laughs> I noticed that uh, they do uh, they do try to encapsulate this by, for example, using something like ya instead of you, for example. Yeah. they. I think that the conversation I was having with my brother, because he was trying to... Um, as I was explaining the language, he was trying to understand sort of the one-to-one translation. And the thing about Japanese to English especially is that um, I think Japanese has so many ways of denoting tone and deference just in the, the word that they use specifically. So if you hear somebody say, oh my, or if they say kimi, right, or like uh, kisama, right, things like that, you know from the way that they're using these words that they do not think, either they don't think highly of the person they're talking to or they're really old friends and they're being kind of jerks with one another. And I think that in English, it's more of a tonal thing where we were we were stuck on this one particular line that Mido uses and he he calls um, he calls Link in the Japanese yose nashi, right? Which means uh, like no fairy. You don't have a fairy. And we were trying to think of how in English, if you were to just say like, we use the example of if someone doesn't have shoes and you say, you just call them no shoes, that's kind of lame and it's not really an insult. (laughs) And yet if you say, oh, here comes Mr. No Shoes, suddenly it's an insult. And so we were kind of laughing with one another about how it's all tone and context. And it was just a, a really great experience seeing the different ways that these lines that I know by heart were originally written. And it made me think how, how much of a difference this translation can give us with the stories that we grow up with. 
I think the the translation stuff is fascinating, but what also fascinates me is that artifact of the instruction manual where you could write down the songs using the stickers. That's amazing to me because one of the things that I always found so unexpectedly challenging about Ocarina of Time as a kid was needing to remember the songs. <laughs> and as a kid, of course, I assumed that was just one aspect of the challenge or how the game was designed. So now to think that it's more of an artifact of part of what was lost in the remake of the game for the GameCube as opposed to the original that had that in the instruction book, it's it's it, it totally changes your perspective on the game, right? And it, it points to how those different supplementary elements of a game beyond just the cartridge itself can really make a difference for how you experience them. Yeah, I love such extensions of the diegetic world. It's And it's such a beautiful way to track progress, right? Because you open that yes. manual and you can always see which songs you've learned. Just like, uh, what was it called? The Witness, that puzzle game by Jonathan Blow. Um, yeah. which heavily relied on people taking yeah. notes. And I still have my notebook from The Witness, which is almost like <laughs> completely full with kind of puzzles and stuff, like I'm trying to decode this language. It's a really wonderful way to see uh, progress. It's so funny how you saying something as simple as that, Stefan, can call to mind such a specific sensory memory for me because you talk about that and right away I'm back in my parents' old living room, maybe 12 years old, with a pad of paper to write down details on the puzzles from The Wind Waker. And that's something I would never do anymore. I don't know if it's just because I've gotten older or if games have veered away from that mode of puzzle storytelling and more towards puzzles that you can solve just by focusing on the game itself. But I had reams and reams of paper with all the different details on the songs and the order in which you had to do things in the dungeon leading up to Ganondorf and all of that stuff. Oh, amazing. I'm actually, uh, maybe that is a good uh, lead up to the, my side quest entry because I'm doing something actually quite similar uh, with my experience of playing Yakuza Like a Dragon. Um, as I've uh, said, I think last week or the week before already I've started it. Um, I'm doing a tiny Yakuza diary, which, don't worry, doesn't contain any story spoilers. But impressions, brief impressions of all the tiny, neat and precious experiences one can have in Yakuza. And it's written from the perspective of Ichiban, the protagonist of the game. And here's diary entry number two. Dear diary, I am a true part-time hero. So when someone is in need, I naturally and without hesitation obtain whatever object may be desired, no matter the cost, no matter the reason. So, seeing the request for an I.I., I made my way to the nearby arcade. I.I. is nothing more than a monkey plushie, easily obtainable at a claw machine in the back corner. Only 500 yen per turn. After swallowing my hard-earned cash, the machine rumbles, plays a cheerful tune. The claw lowers, yet comes up empty, I.I. sitting in the glass box still. Only 500 yen per turn. Though slightly lifted by the head, I.I. slips from the claw's frail grasp. Third time's the charm, I think to myself. It's only 500 yen per turn. Alas, the oversized ears of I.I., which resemble more an elephant than a monkey, are hard to get a hold on. After another 2,000 yen, I manage to wiggle him closer. At the next attempt, he slips further away. I ponder the meaning of life as I carelessly feed the machine. 
only 500 yen per turn, after enough turns to drain me, financially and emotionally, I, I at long last, plummets through the cheap plastic opening to be embraced by my trembling hands. Congratulations, the machine exclaims. I leave the arcade, broke and broken, but mindful enough to mention to the clerk that she may want to restock the claw machine. That was Werner Herzog's The Claw Machine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I pop my 500 yen in. Am I truly controlling anything, I wonder? <laughs> the claw grasps me, and yet I remain outside its grasp like I, sand through the hourglass. I spent, I spent more time than I care to admit trying to get those stupid plushies in, in Like a Dragon. That is yeah. maybe one of the more frustrating minigames. I'm still at it. Maybe now this it raises the interesting question, though, right? Is it more frustrating to have to deal with one of those nonsense claw machines in real life or in Yakuza like a dragon? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I find both <laughs> comparable in its level of frustration. But maybe I'll see. I mean, listeners will have heard it by now, but I think it might be possible even to edit in the sound of the claw machine. I'm not quite sure whether that is legitimate. I'll look into that regarding copyright. Uh, and uh, <laughs> if it's legitimate, I'll put it into the story so people will have already heard it by now. Okay, it is time to transition over to our main story, Aaron. Yes, dear listeners, I'm so excited to share with you my thoughts on the beginning of an analysis on Bandai Namco's recent JRPG, Scarlet Nexus. I do want to give you a warning up front, uh, as, as you might know if you know my work or the way we talk about games in general with a terrible fate um this is going to be riddled with spoilers especially because this is one of those games where the latter motions of its plot really inform the overall content of the story so as we talked about with returnal beforehand i really really hope uh you you take the time to play the game before listening to this so feel free to save this episode and come back uh, if you want to know in general, whether or not it's worth it, I can promise you, if you're interested in really smart thinking about video game storytelling or JRPGs, it certainly is worth it. Uh, and for those who either don't care about my spoiler warning or uh, preferably have played the game, excited to dive in with you and share my thoughts. Well, now you had some time to heed the spoiler warning as we dive into our main story on that beautiful JRPG, Scarlet Nexus, that, Aaron, you have played extensively. Yeah, extensively is a good word for it. Uh, it's it's one of the games in recent history where I think I perhaps had the the easiest time platinum, platinuming it in the sense of it just felt so effortless and I felt compelled to do it. So uh, I've extensively in the sense of probably 60 to 70 hours in front of the game. I'm, I'm not looking at my playtime right now, but yes. Um, and in the spirit of one of the main themes I'll be talking about, which is the value of the deeply personal, I actually wanted to start off my reflection on this game with a deeply personal note. Uh, the first JRPG I ever played back when I was but a young boy with a pretty new GameCube was Tales of Symphonia, which is also a Bandai Namco JRPG, and in many ways 
that was the game that made me start thinking about video games as something that could tell really meaningful and compelling stories. And I played that game into the ground uh, and really subsequently went on to play the Tale series into the ground because I just I fell in love with the way in which Bandai Namco can tell such complex yet also deeply emotional and human stories with JRPGs. So to have started from that point and now uh, to not only be reviewing Scarlet Nexus, but also be fortunate enough to be reviewing it from a, a download code that Bandai Namco actually gave me to be able to offer my analysis of the game is just I it's impossible to overstate how moving and meaningful that is to me. So I, I really wanted to thank Bandai Namco not only for that, but also for just the amazing library of JRPGs they've played over the years. And if you listeners enjoy JRPGs, but for whatever reason have gravitated more towards Square Enix or other publishers, I really, really encourage you to give Bandai Namco a try because they have a, a really special way of telling these stories. In terms of... What I want to talk about, listeners, uh, if you got a chance to check out our Returnal episode, uh, I'm going to be thinking about this in a very similar format uh, in the sense that I loved playing this game. I'm definitely going to be writing an analysis on it, and I've put together my thoughts that will basically be the groundwork for that analysis to share with you and to dig into uh, with my buddies Stefan and Dan here uh, in, in a more preliminary way to, to work through some of these ideas, which was a lot of fun for Eternal, uh, and I think will be a lot of fun for this too. Although it being a JRPG, uh, there is a lot of plot and exposition to try to get out onto the table. So uh, I, I hope, especially given the complexity of Scarlet Nexus's plot, you will find that a little bit gratifying as opposed to uh, something you need to skip through or go through at 3x speed or whatever. <laughs> I, I think the, um, the note on which I would start off, and, and you can really generalize this to a lot of science fiction, but I found myself thinking about it a lot with Scarlet Nexus, this idea that the best time travel stories are not about time travel. Right? And, and this is something that a lot of people think about and talk about a lot in terms of science fiction more broadly, because I, I think if you're a newcomer to the genre, right, it can seem very weird, like, oh, what's all this interplanetary travel and there are aliens and such, but the conceit of pretty much any great science fiction, I think you would say, right, is that what they're ultimately doing is creating really sophisticated and interesting metaphors for experiences that are deeply human rather than alien. And it's really interesting to see how really adept storytellers unwind that thread. Do you guys have any favorite science fiction that, that calls to mind when we talk about it in that way? Yeah, I think Steins Gate would be one. Um, even though it's not technically, I don't know whether it will be called science fiction, but uh, definitely is one of these um, yeah, visual novels, I'm going to say, that start out with a very basic premise as a very teenage uh, visual novel, and then it completely explodes into the domain of the complexity of uh, time travel and multiverses and, and stuff like that. And as you say, Aaron, I feel the same way about Steins Gate. Um, as you feel about Scarlet Nexus, um, that time travel is a part of it. It's an integral part of it, doubtlessly so, but it's mostly a catalyst for um, character growth, for confrontation, for conflict, and for really just very human and interesting moments and, and interesting stories. 
I think uh, Chrono Trigger for me, I don't know that I would call it hard science fiction, but it's certainly a time travel story that isn't about time travel. It's about the characters. And also, I think we've, we've written about it on the site. I think about um, the kind of beautiful futility of, of time and how things progress one way or the other. And we're kind of lucky to be at some point in it. Um, and so I think that when you get lost in the weeds about how the machine works or, you know, what time period you happen to be in, you kind of miss the forest for the trees quite a bit. I think that's a really great point, And it's one worth underscoring with Scarlet Nexus too. I think one of the things that is so challenging and perhaps dangerous about JRPGs with really sophisticated stories, especially when they involve things like time travel as Scarlet Nexus does so much effort can be put into trying to figure out the bare facts of what actually happened and the best causal explanation of all the events in the game that players might take the time to work through that, but that can seem like such an enterprise in itself that it's then hard or not as natural to take a step back and ask, all right, given that and given that that's the structure of the game, what might this be saying on the level of theme and why might these very complicated methods have been chosen to communicate that, right? And I think that that's a big part of what I've been working through with Scarlet Nexus because I think what's superficially challenging about it is that at once it is very focused on human connections and developing these very robust relationships between characters in your party and learning about everyone else in the world. And then on the other hand, there's all of this complicated stuff going on in terms of time travel and people moving through time and entangled timelines and things like this, right? So I'm going to try to offer you a view that unifies those two things and shows how uh, I think you know, where video game storytelling is going now, there's a really interesting opportunity to marry the mechanics of the medium and what makes them interesting as storytelling devices with these more complicated plot devices like time travel to tell stories that, while they might seem complicated, are actually at bottom very human and surprisingly easy to relate to. In the case of Scarlet Nexus, what I want to dig into and focus on is this idea of, of basically, when it comes down to it, just the value of being seen and how being seen can really give someone the opportunity to form an identity and give them the ability to connect with others. Whereas in contrast, in a world where others are being seen and you are not, that can be deeply disenfranchising and can have very negative consequences for you. Almost that I think sounds like you're talking about identity politics here. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm not though. No, <laughs> I'm I'm actually just talking about the what I think is a deeply human and universal sense, right? Of you know, I I, I don't I, maybe this is just me, but I've been thinking about this a lot in in my life lately, right? Especially as we try to figure out who we are, right? That's so hard to do in a vacuum. And so you want to be able to share your sense of self with others, not just to be recognized, but also to help understand who you are. And that's the really interesting thing about Scarlet Nexus, too, I think, in terms of how it's set up. I mean, we'll, we'll get more into this, but it's a game where simultaneously the characters' minds can be literally connected through this system that allows them to share thoughts and psychic abilities with one another 
And yet the characters are also deeply separated from each other to the point where even in the mode of presentation in the game, you'll see them in different panels. So they're, they're spatially isolated from one another. And so it's very apparent that as much as you might want that connection, it's so hard to feel as if you're authentically and entirely sharing yourself with someone else. And I, I, I think that's something that, you know, it, again, like thinking about it in something like the user interface and mode of presentation in a game, it can feel very far afield from human experience initially. But I think that notion of wanting to be recognized is, is deeply relatable and universal. Right? I think it's, yeah, it's very much integral. If I think of such things like uh, Irving Goffman's understanding of the self, um, he basically, he's a sociologist, and he basically says, he assumes that the self is not something that is uh, found internally as some kind of essential core of what who we are, but it's something that is persistently performed and actualized in our interactions with others. And we need those interactions. If we don't have them, then we also lose parts of ourselves. And at the same time, if we, for example, uh, are, uh, let's say, that's the context in which I engage with Goffman. Uh, if we are committed to an institution where we have to assume a different role, you know, our self can be completely altered. So I definitely understand this notion, the importance of being seen and how it forms our understanding of the self. So let's talk about Scarlet Nexus in terms of those connections and relationships. Uh, and dear listeners, like I said, because there's just so much plot in something like this kind of JRPG, I'm going to do my level-headed best to give you a succinct overview of a roughly 60-hour plot, right? I hope you will bear with me. We're going to try to stay at the level where these themes become manifest as much as possible. But if you find yourself wanting to understand more or probe deeper, uh, I hope you either play the game or go back to the game because there are certainly many moments and interesting aspects of the plot uh, that we won't cover on a podcast, uh, or at least on the podcast today. Right? So to begin with a general overview, right? the way that Scarlet Nexus was built was <laughs> with a very grabby but maybe silly sounding description of being in a brain punk world, right? Uh, which I think experientially is much more interesting than the term might sound. The basic premise, right, is that in this world that the game represents individuals, not all individuals, but most individuals have some level of psychic ability or what they call powers uh, and different individuals have different powers, right? And those who are sufficiently adept are drafted by the state, um, Nuhimuka is, is the name of the nation, into the OSF, which stands for Other Suppression Force, and is basically a specialized combat force that is designed to, as the name suggests, suppress these alien, monstrous life forms called Others that are very interestingly designed so as to be impossible to relate to, right? They're these kind of horrifying amalgams of everyday objects and limbs that are attached in ways that don't totally make sense. And they, they clearly have no sense of self or sentience or anything like that, right? And because of this initially inexplicable and rather mysterious tear in the sky called the Extinction Belt, these others on regular, somewhat predictable basis will 
just fall from the sky into various areas of the world and it falls to the OSF to suppress them, to keep everyone safe, right? Now, one interesting aspect of how these platoons of soldiers in the OSF are unified, which starts to make the, the notion of brain punk immediately much more interesting, is that, as I alluded to before, they're actually able to link up their minds to one another through the system called SAS, which very provocatively stands for Struggle Arms System. And the basic idea is that it's this very, very physically painful mode of connection that's facilitated by this um, kind of master bionic computer that manages all such systems uh, within the city called Arahabaki. And this allows soldiers in a given platoon to communicate with each other and share thoughts uh, at will and also to share their powers with one another, right? Which adds a really interesting overlap between the capacity for characters to communicate and get to know each other and build relationships over the course of the game and also in the course of things like the combat that the player faces with the avatar being able to um, literally call on the powers of others in their party in order to give the avatar various abilities or have the other party members uh, lend their aid in various ways. So it's it's a very interesting way of, of linking characters up in that regard. Is that now, something that you had previously mentioned as being sort of a Mindscape thing? Because I remember in our Mindscape episode, you referenced this idea of creating a sort of uh, brainwave Mindscape thing. No, but that's interesting. Um, one way in which that might manifest in this regard uh, is there's a really interesting kind of messaging system within the game almost where at various intervals either your avatar can elect to send messages to other characters or other characters will send messages to groups of characters and that all occurs in this kind of interstitial space of the, the mental communication that they're able to have instantaneously, right? So people don't actually send messages on phones or anything like that, uh, except for people without powers who are relegated to things that are something like physical tablets in the world. But those with psychic abilities are able to just instantly communicate uh, in this way that might manifest it. Yeah, something something like that. It's, it's more about the bonds between their minds because there are some characters that specifically have telepathy and are able to communicate in longer range and more distributed ways. The thing that's interesting in terms of what is a clear cut mindscape, and, and we can focus on this a little later on, but certain characters, and by certain characters, I mean literally only three in the game, are able to manifest what are <laughs> very interestingly called brain fields, where basically they can extend the psychic powers of their minds and draw those with whom they're engaging in combat into these basically pure mindscapes, right? Just extensions of their minds where the character who is controlling and imposing the brain field has unimaginably, uh, excuse me, unimaginably boosted power right? And just incredible agency to do whatever they want while their opponents are basically at their mercy, right? But really interestingly, a, a big theme throughout the game too, which is not my main focus, but I don't think is, is totally out of left field, 
is the idea that with all these psychic powers and abilities of the mind, the further you push yourself, the more at risk you put yourself for burning out your mind or in some cases going crazy, right? So with the brain field, it's a great example of that because mechanically speaking, when your avatar develops the ability to use this, you can use it for a certain period of time. And as you choose to use it for longer and push it closer to that time limit, you can see them basically slowly going crazy as this force of extending their mind causes them to have a more tenuous grasp on their own sanity. And if you use it for too long, uh, they'll actually just die, basically just literally lose their minds and die and it's game over. Uh, and on, on the episode we had a few weeks ago about um, completing trophies, when I said there was an achievement that I had to get for dying, which was my last one, that, that was actually the one for dying in a brain field by oh, virtue of man. using it. For, <laughs> you know. So that's a little bit about the systems that are at play and the basic structure of this world when you when you first enter it, right? Now, in terms of the structure of the story, there's a, a really interesting division that happens that I think it's fair to say is somewhat still unusual within video game storytelling, where as soon as you open this game and go to start it, you immediately have to make a choice between two different characters, two different options for avatars, right? Yuito Sumeragi or Kasane Randall. And they'll give you little blurbs explaining each of those people. But of course, when you first enter the game, those will be meaningless to you. You have no context. So it's basically, I don't want to say a flip of a coin, but I at least had to make more superficial decisions based on, oh, you know, do I want to start by playing a, a male avatar or a female avatar? The little bit of their backstories, which one is more interesting to you? Uh, but they're drastically different avatars, and they also have distinct interwoven stories. So in order to really understand the totality of what's going on, you have to play through each of these different storylines, right? Yuito, we come to learn and understand, he's what's called a volunteer OSF member. So I, I think I mentioned the state basically scouts and mandates that people with sufficient psychic abilities sign up for the OSF and work as soldiers. But there are also volunteers who, if you're not scouted, can basically try out and try to become soldiers. And Yuito is one of these. He's also the son of the, uh, the government's chairman, right? So he's in this kind of interesting position of power and heritage, uh, and in fact, a descendant of the founder of New Himuka, Yakumo Sumeragi. So a lot of his storyline has to do with coming to understand what that consists in, right? In contrast, you have Kasane, who was a scouted member of the OSF, um, was adopted by the Randall family. It's not clear at the beginning of the game who her birth parents were or anything like that. She has a sister named Naomi, of whom she's incredibly fond uh, and to whom very unfortunate things happen over the course uh, of her story. But these are the basic characters with whom you have the option of, of entering the story, right? And May the story, I ask briefly yeah, to, to, to interrupt with a very casual question, uh, which, as, which, as whom did you play first and why? So I played as Yuito first, and I think there were two reasons. Um, one, I think I default just to playing male avatars more than females if I if I don't have anything else to go on. Uh, and secondly, that little bit of a blurb that they gave me about him, even though it wasn't much to go on, this idea that he 
was someone who volunteered for this kind of role while also having this like deep relationship to the power that guides the the government of the state that sounded really interesting to me uh and i i don't know that it's a coincidence that the descriptions in the beginning i feel give you a little more to go on in terms of yuito rather than kasane but i don't know whether that's ultimately intentional or not but yeah that's the order so I played after, them. Yeah, after after playing through both of them you can say that it really doesn't matter like you have you can get the same kind of you come to the same kind of conclusions to the same kind of understanding regardless of the order in which you play them it's a really interesting question i don't know that that's true of course regardless of whatever order you play it in you you will ultimately come to learn all of the various aspects of the game's story and these characters relationships it's not as if playing one first gives you access to stuff that that you wouldn't have gotten had you played the other one first um but i think one of the things that i want to dwell on in a little while here is these avatars are very different not just in terms of their background but in terms of their ontological relationship to the universe and so I think ultimately what you come to understand is that in many interesting and unexpected ways, Kasane has priority in the universe over Yuito. With that in mind, I kind of felt myself wishing as though I had played Kasane first because I felt like it would have been a more logical progression, but also to have had certain expectations of who Yuito was and then have them undermined was was very satisfying and and surprising to me so I don't think you can go wrong in terms of which one you choose first in terms of the plot itself right there as as often happens with JRPGs right there are a few different levels uh and let's say scopes on which things are happening in this world and and you kind of it's it's interesting in Scarlet Nexus because I think a lot of JRPG veterans will be used to the idea of starting off on the level of very human or societal conflicts and expanding out to broad universal ones and ultimately fighting God or, or you know, insert whatever yeah. JRPG final <laughs> boss you want to think of. Fighting existence itself. Or something. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, God mode Kefka has entered the ring. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it's What's really cool about Scarlet Nexus, though, and I'm still honestly wrestling with, is it starts out with that kind of expansion of scope, and then it circles back to become very unexpectedly intimate and human in a way that most of these JRPGs do not. So let me take you there. It starts with, as I said, very, I don't want to say colored by numbers, but what you might expect in terms of a JRPG's traditional scope, right? It's kind of a, you know, warring states or warring factions set up of two different cities within the nation of New Himuka um, coming to a head and, and having conflict, right? So Suo is the seat of the government. And basically, it becomes apparent over the course of the story, uh, as as these avatars enter into the OSF, that Suo is is very much like this secretly totalitarian regime where there's a lot of surveillance of all the citizens going on, and they're actually doing research in people's psychic abilities and the mind to basically be able to reprogram their personalities and create super soldiers uh, and even turn humans into others, those horrifying alien creatures that I mentioned to you at the outset, right? So the 
core conflict between these cities at the beginning is, you know, that's going on in Suo. And one of the actual leaders of the OSF, a guy by the name of Karin Travers, leads this rebellion, basically exposing all of these totalitarian efforts of Suo and saying, we need to find a way to be free and live as individuals. And so he goes to Seiron, this other city that basically becomes the seat of his rebellion, right? Now, it turns out that Seiron isn't doing great stuff either, uh, as often happens in these conflicts. Uh, they are storing these humans that have been turned into others, uh, trying to conduct research into ways to control them. They process human brains into medicine to do a variety of things with. It turns out that medicine can actually be used to, to some extent, restore the sentience of humans that have been turned into others. It also has the ability to potentially either augment the abilities of people with psychic powers or stabilize people whose powers for one reason or another are unstable, as we learn is the case for Yuito over the course of his story, right? So that's what we've got going on at level one, right? Kind of, I, mean, I, I don't want to say standard, but yeah, you know, it's as standard as you can get in a JRPG, right? There's yeah. a war going on. There's terrible stuff on both sides. Weird fantasy to keep track of, all that I, stuff. I, I, just, right? I just thought of that, like in, in the domain of video game literature, see where other people might say like what and it's like uh, uh, when we sit together it's kind of like yeah of course of course there's pushing their brains <laughs> yeah, into medicine you know. yeah yeah <laughs> that makes sense <laughs> no it's, i i actually because i've i've gotten to that point aaron in the story at least where the the brains come up and i remember messaging you when i got there and i'm like oh yeah this reminds me of a particular anime called psychopath which actually delved into the the using brains to for other functions so yeah it's like all right all right yeah we got there we got there <laughs> well, it's funny that that's that's something that I definitely find interesting in terms of the storytelling modality of JRPGs in general, right? Because you're right, like people such as us are so desensitized to stuff like that. And at the moment in the game where, for instance, Yuito and and his platoon discover that brains are being processed and used by Seiron in this way, they're they're properly horrified, as as you would be if you were to discover this for the first time, right? And subsequently discover that you actually have to take this medicine in order to stabilize your own mind, right? And and I have to imagine that if you were someone who hadn't played a lot of JRPGs, you might be similarly shocked and horrified. And and while I too was in the context of this particular story, I, I did feel as though I had a different perspective on it as some might have just given how rote a lot of those modes of storytelling are within JRPGs, you know? So that's level one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but then you get to the really good stuff. Uh, not that that stuff isn't good, but the the stuff that universal scope JRPGs are made of, let's say. Right. So Yuito and Kasane, part of how their stories interweave and separate is that they basically, through a variety of circumstances, including Naomi, Kasane's sister, actually being turned into another uh, through a kind of unhappy accident and being hit by one of the the bullets of Suo that that has this functionality, these two avatars end up being put um, on the opposite sides of this conflict, right? So Yuito and his platoon stay for the most part in Suo. Kasane and hers move over to Seiron. They go on different adventures. They end up ultimately deciding as they start unraveling these conspiracies to try to find out more by going to this independent religious 
state within New Himuka. It's called Togetsu, right? And when they go there, uh, I don't want to say shit hits the fan, but it's it's where the scope is immediately expanded to much more universal stuff um, because what they learn is that, and, and stay with me listeners and, and my dear friends here because it is definitely a turn, what they discover is that 3,000 years in the past, humans emigrated from an Earth that suffered from a shift in its orbit that ended up destroying its climate and habitability. They moved to the moon in order to find a new habitable place in order to settle uh, while they worked on ways to basically rehabilitate the Earth's climate. Right? They spent 1,000 years on the moon working on the climate of Earth and after it became sufficiently habitable again, they decided to send colonists back to Earth to basically repopulate it, right? Now, any questions so far on that, on that very basic idea, right? Very, you know, familiar stuff. Familiar stuff, yeah. I mean, I, I think I've even... What was the name of that anime that was also engaged with pretty much the same question of like humans departing from Earth, orbiting space, trying to find an, a place to land or something or another planet to get to? <laughs> I don't know the I, anime, but I, I, you may be thinking of the, anime. the Pixar film WALL-E. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. It was wall That's my yeah. favorite anime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, it's, I think it's, it might be some kind of Netflix exclusive, but definitely I wasn't all too surprised exactly because what we already spoke about. It's uh, something that in the wider context of JRPGs and anime storytelling, I, I just think... Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, it it doesn't surprise. I'm still me. with you. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting too. And, and this would go way too far afield for this podcast, but uh, one that would be fun to do in the future is just thinking with our resident Japanese scholar here about um, Japanese storytellers' um, meditations on the moon, because various modes of moon-based storytelling come up in so many JRPGs and animes, and of course, Majora's Mask, um, the, the site's namesake, is essentially focused on the moon, right? So, anyways, we're, we're talking about the past, we have the idea of colonists coming to Earth, right? And then, at some point after that, these mysterious, unexplained particles called other particles appeared on the moon with this capacity to basically bond with life forms and transform them into others, right? And so the moon tried to figure out a way to deal with this and destroy them. It seems as though they couldn't. And so their best solution was to instead aggregate the other particles and push them away from the moon toward the space that exists between the moon and Earth, which in fact was the formation of this extinction belt that I explained as that kind of tear in the sky that manifests others back at the beginning of the game before we knew all of the quote-unquote deep lore of, of this world and its history. So right? are, you telling me, are you telling me that their plan was literally Patrick's plan from that SpongeBob episode? We'll just move everything over there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just push we'll the We'll take the other particles over there. and push it somewhere else. Listen, listen. <laughs> When all other options are exhausted, as you will recall was the case for Bikini Bottom in that seminal JRPG SpongeBob, it's not the worst plan in the world. All right. <laughs> gonna, yeah, the, fu the future, saving the future from climate crisis, 
probably a good idea. I want to say as a side note, right, it's it's all well and good. And I think a big part of getting into JRPGs is having this much fun with their stories. But for anyone who has not heard me talk about JRPGs before and is having trouble following my tone, I, I truly love this game. And I think its story is fantastic, especially as you're experiencing it in the game rather than having three game analysts telling you about it on a podcast. So don't don't let anything here speak against that. Right now. What's interesting here is that, so after this extinction belt happened, right, and these colonists had been deployed, there were basically two factions within the colonists, as you might expect, right? One was led by Yuito's ancestor, Yakumo Sumeragi, uh, and that faction wanted to stay on Earth and rebuild it, and that was the start of the nation New Himuka, Right. Whereas there were others who wanted to find a way to go back to the moon and figure out a way to get past the extinction belt and, and go back to what for them was home. And that formed the beginning of the Togetsu independent religious state and the Togetsu faith, which is all about um, nominally moon worship, but in terms of its actual functionality, trying to figure out a way to go back to the moon. Now, how are you going to try to go back to the moon if there's now this extinction belt that exists between the earth and the moon and forestalls any communication that the earth might be able to make with those who remained on the moon? Well, Togetsu ultimately came to believe that the only way they'd really be able to go back to the moon as such would be to rewrite history so that the emigration from the moon back to earth never happened. And so what they tried to do, which again, in the context of this world with people with psychic abilities, not, not the craziest thing to try to do, they created these synthetic beings called design children that you know look and function like humans but are, are basically these manufactured dolls. And they created countless of them basically with the goal of trying to cultivate this specific psychic power called the red strings which is the ability to travel through time. And their hope was that if they could develop someone with this power, they could use them to go back in time and make it so that that emigration from the moon back to Earth never happened. And so then everyone would, in some sense, stay on the moon, although importantly, those who went to Earth and populated it in the history of the thousands of years after that would never really have existed. So it would be changing history, but not in a way that was meaningful to those who were basically written out of it, right? Now, what we come to learn is that Kasane actually was the successful design child who has this red strings power, right? You initially think as you go into this game that Kasane and Yuito have the ability of psychokinesis, basically just being able to move things with their mind, but what you later learn and what I think is a, a really cool um, revelation is that their actual power is not psychokinesis, but what's called within the game gravikinesis or the ability to manipulate gravitational fields, right? And so it makes sense that they could use that both to move objects, but also at a much larger scale, actually be able to manipulate and move themselves through time. And that's just what the red strings is, right? And what's, what's a very interesting 
kind of turn where you discover the difference between these avatars is, like I said, Kasane was basically manufactured by Tagetsu for this purpose of time travel. But Yuito was kind of a shadow of Kasane and more of an artificial avatar in the following sense. So as you're going through Yuito's story, he has the same abilities as Kasane. It's not totally clear why he has those abilities. He also has this weird, unexplained memory of someone who looked just like Kasane, saving him as a child. Uh, and then you come to realize also that his powers were through some way given to him rather than just present at birth. He initially was what's called in this world a dud, someone without powers, and then he subsequently acquired them somehow, which is why they're so unstable, and he needs to do things like take this medicine that's processed through human brains, right? Uh, well, as you're going through the story, right, one thing that happens early on in the kind of level one warring state section is... Yuito and Kasane confront Karin before he instigates this rebellion. And in the process of that confrontation, this inexplicable giant void in the sky appears that looks something like a black hole. And we come to learn it's called the Kunad Gate, right? And it turns out, we discover that this black hole, whose origins aren't immediately clear, is going to slowly expand and consume the entire universe if something isn't done about it, right? Um, it turns out that that is basically, that Kunad gate is caused by the resonance between Yuito and Kasane's powers because there's basically too much of this gravikinesis and a conflict in some way between their gravikinesis powers. So in order to try to understand and resolve this Kunad gate, ultimately, um, Kasane and Yuito decide to solicit the help of someone else who has a weaker version of the Red Strings powers, comes from Tagetsu and understands all of this, namely their mother. But in order to find their mother, because she's no longer around, she's passed away, they have to travel back in time. And Kasane in particular has to travel back in time to the only stable point at which they know she'll be located, which is... Uh, just before this attack occurs in a hospital where she was staying with a young Yuito, right? So Kasane travels back in time to get their mother to help them resolve this time issue. And it's while she's back in time there with a young Yuito that she actually saves him from this attack. And in the process of saving him, basically imparts him with her powers, right? And so that very complicated time travel instance that I just explained basically gives a story as to how Yuito's powers are directly derived from Kasane, right? It turns out he's not someone who just happens to have the same powers. He's actually someone who has kind of inherited his unstable powers as a shadow of Kasane's powers, right? It also turns out even more complicated for Yuito uh, that his ancestor may also have been replaced by someone else who used these time travel powers, namely, as I'm going to talk about in a moment, Karin Travers. And so his entire existence is in this really weird way 
bound up through these time travel anomalies so that he's he's in many ways the conflict in the story's causal chain that makes the entire universe unstable in this way that is represented by the Kunad Gate, right? So a very interesting point because as we mentioned a bit earlier that it basically equivocates the instability of the self with the instability of the universe, right? Because both need to be fixed at the same time, if I understand this correctly. 100%. And exactly to that point, Stefan, the ultimate way to resolve the Kunad Gate and basically preserve the course of this universe and history is by unraveling what are referred to in the game as entanglements within the gates, these knots in time that are basically created by unresolved time travel. And exactly to your point, only the people who created those knots in the first place can unravel them. And so as the group comes to understand this and we move into the third act, the only people who can resolve the entanglements in the gate are Yuito and Kasane, and then they come to discover also Karin Travers, who appears for reasons not immediately clear to have also traveled through time and created this entanglement by going back in time and killing Yuito's ancestor, the original moon colonist, Yuito Sumeragi, for reasons that aren't immediately obvious, right? So we move into the third act of the game, and the gang doesn't really know why Karin has done this. They just know that they need to find him, right? And and get him to undo this entanglement in order to save the world. Karin is really interesting, right? Because this is where, as I alluded to before, the game moves from these giant cosmic issues that we've just been talking about in extreme detail back to the deeply intimate and personal, right? So... Karin started this rebellion against Suo, like I mentioned. We don't know that much else about him at the outset, except that his power, very provocatively, is what's called Brain Eater, where he's basically able to absorb the psychic powers of others. And that's that's his whole psychic ability, right? And so he, similarly to Yuito, isn't someone who naturally has this power of the red strings to time travel, Rather, we see him over the course of the game basically absorb and steal that power from Yuito and Kasane in order to time travel for reasons unclear. And what we ultimately learn in a really touching sequence as the game goes to to find Karin at, at the end and confront him is that he... You know, as he was starting out in the OSF, he was in a platoon with his friend Fubuki and his childhood friend who would become his fiance, Alice Ichijo. And it turns out that Alice was one of the first people to metamorphose into another when they were going out on a mission and the extinction belt was so low to earth at that point that they actually ran into it. And she was touched by these other particles and turned into uh, this monstrous alien creature, right? And so it turns out that all that Karin has really cared about through the course of this game was not the societal conflict in New Himuka at all or anything like that. He really just wanted to figure out a way to get the person he loved, Alice, back. Either by finding a way to make it so that she was never made another in the first place or even by figuring out 
a way to cure her once she was turned into another. So we actually, we see over the course of the events of the game, like I said, Sauron actually stores the humans who have been turned into others and Alice is there and Karn is trying to figure out a way to use Kasane's powers to to find a cure and basically bring back her sentience and bring her back to her human body. And once that ultimately fails and Alice ends up dying in this in the course of the later events of the game that's when he basically seizes Kasane's powers again for what we learn was you know uncountably many times to go back in time all the way to the start of the civilization kill Yakumo Sumeragi take his place as the leader of this world and try to find a way to alter history so that Alice was never turned into another in the first place and as I said, we don't get a sense of how many times he's done this. We just get a sense that he's done this uncountably many times, right? And so the final confrontation, right, in the game, it's not, it's not against some giant god or some universal being. We go to the tomb of the Sumeragis, right, to find modern-day Karin, opening up this kind of deep sleep cold storage where Yakumo Sumeragi has been stored for centuries, right? Who comes out and of course takes off his mask and is another version of Karin. And that paradox is resolved by the modern day Karin basically absorbing him and all of his knowledge into the modern day Karin and getting ready to go back and do this again and travel through time as many times as it takes and steal the time traveling powers of these avatars in order to try to save this person he loves. Right. And I think that's so interesting because it's such a human turn in this game that has so many seemingly inhuman things going on, not least of which because after the party confronts him and defeats him and defeats the manifestations of his negative emotions that turn into these giant monsters on which he's literally crucified in the final boss fight, so amazing imagery there, what Karin decides to do in terms of resolving these paradoxes and undoing the entanglement and saving Alice is his ultimate solution is to basically go back in time one last time and rather than killing and taking the place of Yakumo Sumeragi, just live out his days in the deep past and basically write himself out of history, which makes it the case that since Alice never met him, she ends up being able to live her life and we see her alive at the end of the game. And that's that's one of the last shots in the entire game, right? I think that's that's so interesting to me because, I mean, there, there's a lot more to be said about the the various layers of what's going on in terms of the Avatar's powers. But Karin was really what got me interested in digging deeply into this game in the first place because you know we've talked a number of times on with a terrible fate in the context of different games about villains who seem so tragic because they recognize that there is a nexus of agency in their universe and that they have no access to it right i've talked about this in terms of caius uh the the tragic villain hero in final fantasy 13 2 and dan you just wrote an article that's very much akin to this about Xemnas in Kingdom Hearts 2, right? But 
this idea and this this realization of that theme in Karin, someone who so desperately wants something that he should be able to have based on the rules of this universe, but he can't have because he's so outside the realm of that power that all he can do is to try to steal it, is just such sad pathos, especially when he decides that the only way for him to have his way and save the person he loves is by effectively writing himself out of the history of the game to the point where, you know, I've, I've talked about the ways in which the kind of user interface and mode of presentation feed into these themes. A great example of that is in the final credits of the game. You see all of these windows into various memories of things that have happened throughout the game, as is very common in JRPGs. And some of them are images of things that Karin has done. And as you're watching before your eyes, Karin is is wiped away from those images. Like he he's literally erasing himself from the plot in the correction of this history that will allow the world to go on and allow the person he cares about to go on without him. Right. I I'm clearly still thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it affects me too because it just the I I totally agree that's such a relatable thing. It seems to be essentially about about a character who's deeply traumatized and and can't find a way to uh, to integrate that trauma into his identity so it continues this infinite loop until eventually the only way to to resolve it and to stop his own his own suffering and the suffering of others that he causes in the wake of of doing that loop is basically by by giving in you know by giving up my uh, exactly my favorite villain I think from any video game and I say villain in air quotes, is um, Toktomariki from Persona 5 Royal. And his his ambition is very similar in the sense that his, his entire worldview is based around wouldn't it be better for people if they could forget their trauma and move forward? And I think that the way that he goes about doing that is by placing himself in this sort of seat of power where he can have control over people's memory and basically decide what's best for them and remove the the horrible things that have happened. And I think this is an interesting kind of counter or answer to that where, I mean, it's, it's literally self-destructive in Karin's case to put that much energy into something like that, where, you know, having not finished this game, if the, if the idea is sort of, you know, like you started this conversation with Aaron saying that it's about being seen and having this self-identity that you compose, how truly tragic it is to wrap that identity up in someone else to the point where you erase yourself entirely. Even if your goals are noble, it's a very sad thing to consider. It is sad. And I think the thing that makes me feel even more melancholic for, for Karen about it is that it's it's not even that he is sacrificing and erasing his sense of self for someone else's goals, but it's the idea that he can't he can't exist in a paradigm that recognizes both himself and Alice because he's just not the focus of this world or this story. And I think that's what makes it so sad. We have all of these seemingly disparate jrpg elements on the table right now and and i think it's a great time to go back to that theme of being seen because i think just like the 
the kind of messaging and branding of Scarlet Nexus is all about weaving these red threads together, I think these disparate elements are woven together in a really subtle and challenging and interesting way based on how they leverage video game storytelling, right? So if we think about what the red strings are, and again, the, like we said at the beginning, great time travel stories aren't about time travel, right? So what what do the red strings really represent, right? And what are they doing in the storytelling, right? Well, my thought right now is, look, the red strings were synthesized in response to basically the advent of conflict and contrast, right? We have this difference and disparity between the earth and the moon and individuation that comes from that. We have characters that are literally being othered in the sense of turning into these incomprehensible creatures with no sentience and no sense of self, right? And the best solution that characters at the time could come up with to try to resolve that conflict was just to negate that conflict by instantiating this ability to basically rewrite and modify history, right? And as that comes about, it manifests through, again, this power of gravikinesis, right? And what's so cool about that in the game, I think, is there's this kind of obvious metaphorical and linguistic sense in which, you know, the gravity of something is the center of attention, right? But that's actually, that's actually grounded in the game, too, because Kasane comes to understand that the way Red Strings works on a functional level is that basically she has to tether herself to emotionally resonant moments in her own history, and that's how she's able to travel from one moment to another. So this seemingly very obtuse notion of time travel is really just a, a very interesting, I think, well put together metaphor for what it is to travel through the story of a video game with an avatar, right? With a single focus of attention, right? And this character whose emotional cadence unifies the plot of the game, but who's also able to play fast and loose with causality and retry things and do things in ways that aren't totally coherent with the story as they explore different possible outcomes and do things like New Game Plus that are just impossible to make sense of within an ordinary causal chain, right? What's also really cool about the way that the game uses its framing to reinforce this is, you know, you go through this whole game from the beginning and there's this weird way of looking into the world, like I mentioned, where you you very rarely see the entire world filling up your TV screen in the dynamic way you might be expecting. Instead, it's a bunch of different panels, almost like a, like a comic book or something, that are framed by these red strings where you see these windows into different characters talking to each other. And as you go through the story, you actually come to discover there's a narrative reason for that. Because when Yuito and Kasane go in to try to undo these entanglements within the Kunad Gate, they encounter a world that looks an awful lot like what the player has been looking at this whole time. Basically, this abstract space with a lot of these different red panel windows into different moments in their lives, which their mom explains is the Kronos Terminal and basically this mental representation of the universe and different timelines for people who are able to manipulate that. Right. And so that connection between the avatar and player, I think, does a great job of grounding the player's real agency as the source of this red strings power that empowers the avatar to move in these unusual ways by virtue of the player paying attention to them. Right. 
the avatar is the locus of what the player is seeing and what they care about. And so these abilities, while very, you know, sci-fi and metaphorical, are also really just the ability for the player to see and care about one character and then extend that to other characters, but in ways that are paradoxical and not always equitable, right? That's what we get even with Yuito, someone who seems like an avatar, but we understand is causing all of these problems within the timeline because he's not quite a proper avatar and the players just basically willing him into that through the power of the red strings, right? And it's something that we're also able to cultivate through the course of these incredible relationship building mechanics that I was talking about earlier, basically empowering the other characters within the party of the avatar by choosing as the avatar to pay attention to them and spend time with them. And so through the nexus of that avatar, you're able to make those other characters in your party. And there are a lot of them. I think it's like 10 total, but you're able to make them all feel seen, both in the context of the fiction, but also even as a player. You sit back at the end and say to yourself, wow, I really feel like I know these characters, regardless of how many they are. And that that's really amazing. But it also sharpens that contrast, I think, between everyone else in this world who is a focus of the story or someone who can be seen and who needs to be honored in the resolution of the game's history and someone like Karin, right, who is purely outside that focus and in fact antagonistic to that focus, right, outside the player's attention, desperately trying to claim that attention for himself, but finding that the only way to really get what he cares about because it's so outside the main plot is through self-erasure, like we talked about earlier, right? And that's just, that's so tragic, I feel, especially because going back to that idea of the brain field that we talked about quite a while ago, I think one of the most salient things about Karin as someone whom you have to fight is he is the only person you meet in the game besides Yuito and Kasane who has the mental fortitude to use a brain field in combat. They make a great point about how strenuous that is and how basically no one else can do it except for the avatar, the quasi-avatar, shadow of the avatar, and Karin. So it seems like he has every reason to be capable of being a focus of the story, worthy of being that center of attention. When we see his plot and storyline from the outside as we go to confront him it seems filled with pathos but it's just not the focus of the story that we're playing and that's what makes him have to act in the way that he does which i think is ultimately what makes it so alienating and tragic i mean he's the most human character in the game but he's also the most othered regardless of always staying as a human and not becoming an other within the context of the fiction right so I think the you know the article that I'm working on and thinking about right now is all about this villain's pathos because I think that's really what has moved me to stay on this game and think about what what makes it so simultaneously empowering in terms of what these bonds and relationships can do when you're inside of them but also kind of disheartening or at least calling the player to task for the responsibility they have and how we as people have responsibility to see ourselves and others and can have real impact on those whom we keep outside our sphere of attention, right? Especially when we have that transition from the cosmic back to the personal, I think that makes it all the more shocking for us and a revelation. It's funny because I was thinking initially, um, 
when I was sitting back and playing this game, I know we even talked about this on the podcast a few weeks ago, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if there were another path through the game that opened up once you played as these two avatars? And after I finished, I had the immediate thought of like, oh, well, you know, since Karin steals the powers of Kasane and Yuito, it might be really cool to have, after you play their storylines, this opportunity to play as Karin in one or several of the times when he goes back through history and fails, and maybe it ends with you being forced to delete your save data, um, you know, through through that really interesting Aww. language of video game that storytelling. That would be proper Nier style. Exactly, right? But proper there's Nier. a reason why everyone talks about that. Proper, it's proper Nier! It's proper Nier, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Going all out, deleting your save data. That would be... I think that would be, it, it, it would be amazing. I mean, it has been done before, but it would be amazing still. I think it would be amazing, but see, this is this is one of the reasons and, and a case study in why I, I always harp on people to think through the totality of a game rather than just criticizing one aspect of it, because I too found myself it would be amazing. But then the more I was meditating on this, even just getting ready for this podcast, I found myself thinking, well... But the thing that makes Karin so tragic and so unable to actually act on his plot is the fact that even when he steals this time-traveling power, he's still outside the focus of the player. That doesn't give him the player's attention or capacity to change things, right? And so I ultimately found myself thinking like, well, as cool as that would feel, it would kind of undermine the explanation of of why Karin isn't able to do what he wants to and why he ultimately needs to erase himself you know it's it's almost it would, the yeah. it's the preservation of the game and the story in concert with his erasure as a character that i think really makes that work it would right? be a it, it would be a brave choice for a developer in a situation like that to open the third character but you can only do it once and then it's it's gone. That option is you, you can never do it again. Sort of like how we talked about Undertale last week, how Undertale remembers your choices. It would be interesting if a game said, unless you hard reboot everything, you can't do that again. Well, just you wait for the DLC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'll say I'll say a couple of things in closing, right? First of all, as much as we had to meander through the plot to get here, I, I hope it's clear. I think this game is tremendously fascinating i think bandai namco jrpgs especially those that are outside the namco tales branding haven't gotten the attention they really deserve this one and code vein before it so if you're interested in these kinds of storytelling meditations or just really interesting um jrpg brain punk storytelling uh i i really recommend that you explore scarlet nexus and think about it and talk about it with people like this because that's what really makes it the most illuminating the other thing that i think is really cool and and maybe even another topic for for a whole other podcast conversation is i think bandai namco is doing a really great job of pushing the limits of the language of what relationship building in video game storytelling can do as a narrative mechanic uh like i mentioned the jrpg that they put out um most immediately before this i think at least this kind of jrpg was code vein a couple of years ago and it also has uh mechanism for developing relationships between characters but i've i've written about in the past how 
that relationship building mechanic is very vampiric in the sense of you're you're kind of just acquiring these memories from characters that they're distanced and detached from and really just doing so for the purpose of building your own abilities or the avatar's abilities rather uh, instead of cultivating bonds that carry through to battle with these other party members and i think the sas model of scarlet nexus just emphasizes how vampiric that model feels in contrast to something like this where the relationship building is so intrinsically bonded with your capacity to work with these characters and battle and understand them in the broader context of the story i don't think that says that one is necessarily better than the other quite to the contrary i think they tell very different stories and i think it's it's very much a knee-jerk reaction to think like, well, the only question in relationship building in video games is whether I end up really caring about the characters at the end. I think that's really reductive, and I think what Bandai Namco shows why it's reductive. And so I'm really interested to see if they continue on that trend with their future games to explore if there are even more dimensions along which those relationship building mechanisms can be different and, and thereby tell a, a vibrant range of different stories. So... I would say kudos to Bandai Namco. Thank you so much for another great JRPG. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to think about it. Uh, and I really hope we as gamers can can carry that ethos forward in thinking about the human side of fantastical and really challenging plots in the games that we love so much. Wow, that was a proper mellow episode that we had here <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know all, all the makings of mellowness got time travel and eating human brains and uh people watching you while you play those games oh, on, on <laughs> your listeners out there thank you so very much for listening if you found this show as mellow as the three of us did then please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash with a terrible fate Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, look out for Aaron's analysis for Scarlet Nexus on withaterriblefate.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com with your thoughts and questions. And then we'll talk again next week. See you then. 